Chapter fourteen of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter fourteen The Second Battle of the Creeves. The military historian must often make shift to write of battles with slender data, but he can pad out his deficiencies by learned parallels. If his were the talented pen describing this, the latest action fought on British soil against a foreign foe, he would no doubt be crippled by the absence of written orders and war diaries. But how eloquently he would discount on the resemblance between Dougal and Gurul! How the plan of leaving the enemy to waste his strength upon a deserted position was that which, on the 15th of July, 1918, the French general had used with decisive effect in Champagne. But Dougal had never heard of Gurul, and I cannot claim that, like the happy warrior, he through the heat of conflict kept the law in calmness made, and saw what he foresaw. I have had the benefit of discussing the affair with him and his colleagues, but I should offend against historic truth if I represented the main action as anything but a scrimmage, a soldier's battle, the historian would say, a malplaqué, an albuera. Just after half-past three that afternoon, the commander-in-chief was revealed in a very bad temper. He had intercepted Sir Archie's car, and, since Lyon was known to be fully occupied, had brought it in by the West Lodge and hidden it behind a clump of laurels. There he had held a hoarse council of war. He had cast an appraising eye over Syme the butler, Carfrey the chauffeur, and McGuffog the gamekeeper, and his brows had lightened when he beheld Sir Archie with an armful of guns and two big cartridge magazines. But they had darkened again at the first words of the leader of the reinforcements. "'Now for the tower!' Sir Archie had observed cheerfully. "'We should be a match for the three watchers, my lad, and it's time that poor devil what's-his-name was relieved.' "'A bonny-like plan that would be,' said Dougal. "'Man, you'd be walking into the very trap they want. An hour, or maybe two, the rest will turn up from the sea, and they'd have ye tight by the neck.' "'Narna, it's time we're wanting, and the longer they think we're all in the old tower, the better for us. What news of the police?' He listened to Sir Archie's report with a gloomy face. "'Not afore the darkening. They'll be o'er late. The police are a eh, o'er late. It looks as if we had the job to do ourselves. What's your notion?' "'God knows,' said the baronet, whose eyes were on Saskia. "'What's yours?' The deference conciliated Dougal. "'There's just the one plan that's worth a docking. There's fibers here, and there's plenty weapons. Besides, there's five diehards somewhere aboot, and though they've never tried it afore, they can be trusted to loose off a gun. My advice is to hide at the Garper foot and stop the boat's landing. We'd have the tinklers on our flank, no doubt, but I'm not muckle feared of them. It wouldn't be easy for the boats to get in with this tearing wind and us firing volleys from the shore. Sir Archie stared at him with admiration. You're a hearty young fire-eater, but, great Scott, we can't go potting at strangers before we find out their business. This is a law-abiding country. We're not entitled to start shooting that stepped in self-defence. Oh, you can watch that plan out. It's not feasible. Dougal spat cynically. For all that, it's the right strategy. Man, we might sink the lot, and then turn and settle with Dobson, and all afore the first policeman showed his nib. It would be a grand performance. But I was feared ye wouldn't be for it. Well, there's just the one other thing to do. We must get inside the hoose and put it in a state of defence. Heritage has McCunn's pistol, and he'll keep them busy for a bit. When they finish with him, and find the place is empty, they'll try the hoose, and we'll give them a warm reception. 
That should keep us going till the police arrive, unless they're coming with a blind carrier. Sir Archie nodded. But why put ourselves in their power at all? They're at present barking up the wrong tree. Let them bark up another wrong one. Why shouldn't the house remain empty? I take it we're here to protect the princess. Well, we've done that if they go off empty-handed. Dougal looked up to the heavens. I wish McCann was here, he sighed. Aye, we've got to protect the princess, and there's just the one way to do it, and that's to put an end to this crowd of blackguards. If they gang empty-handed, they'll come again another day, either here or somewhere else, and it won't be long afore they get the lassie. But if we finish with them now, she can sit down with an easy mind. That's why we've got to hang on to them till the police come. There's no way out of this business but a battle. He found an ally. Dougal is right, said Saskia. If I am to have peace, by some way or other the fangs of my enemies must be drawn for ever. He swung round and addressed her formally. Mem, I'm asking ye for the last time, will ye keep out of this business? Will ye gang back and sit doon aside Mrs. Morden's fire, and have your tea and wait till we come for ye? Ye can do no good, and ye're putting yourself terrible in the enemy's power. If we are beaten ye are no there, they get very little satisfaction. But if they get you, they get what they've come seeking. I tell ye straight ye are an encumbrance. She laughed mischievously. I can shoot better than you, she said. He ignored the taunt. Will ye listen to sense and fall to the rear? I will not, she said. Then gang your own gate. I'm o'er wise to argy-bargy with women. The hoose be it. It was a journey which sorely tried Dougal's temper. The only way in was by the veranda, but the door at the west end had been locked, and the ladder had disappeared. Now of his party three were lame, one lacked an arm, and one was a girl. Besides, there were the guns and cartridges to transport. Moreover, at more than one point before the veranda was reached, the route was commanded by a point on the ridge near the old tower, and that had been Spidal's position when Dougal made his last reconnaissance. It behoved to pass these points swiftly and unobtrusively, and his company was neither swift nor unobtrusive. McGuffog had a genius for tripping over obstacles, and Sir Archie was for ever proffering his aid to Saskia, who was in a position to give rather than to receive, being far the most active of the party. Once Dougal had to take the gamekeeper's head and force it down, a performance which would have led to an immediate assault but for Sir Archie's presence. Nor did the latter escape. "'Will ye stop heating the lassie and attend to your own job?' the chieftain growled. "'You're making as much noise as a roll-roller.' Arrived at the foot of the veranda wall, there remained the problem of the escalade. Dougal clambered up like a squirrel, by the help of cracks in the stones, and he could be heard trying the handle of the door into the house. He was absent for about five minutes, and then his head peeped over the edge, accompanied by the hooks of an iron ladder. "'From the boiler-hoose,' he informed them, as they stood clear for the thing to drop. It proved to be little more than half the height of the wall. Saskia ascended first, and had no difficulty in pulling herself over the parapet. Then came the guns and ammunition, and then the one-armed Syme, who turned out to be an athlete. But it was no easy matter getting up the last three. Sir Archie anathematised his frailties. "'Nice old crock to go tiger-shooting with,' he told the Princess. "'But set me to something where my confounded leg don't get in the way, and I'm still pretty useful.' Dougal, mopping his brow with a rag he called his handkerchief, observed sourly that he objected to going scouting with a herd of elephants. Once indoors his spirits rose, 
The party from the mains had brought several electric torches, and the one lamp was presently found and lit. "'We can't count on the police,' Dougal announced. "'And when the foreigners is finished with the tour, they'll come on here. If no, we must make them. What is it the soldiers called it? Force in a battle. Now see here. There's the two roads into this place, the back door and the verandy, leaving out the front door, which is changed, and lock it. They'll try those two roads first, and we must get them well barricaded in time. But mind, if there's a good few of them, it'll be an easy job to batter in the front door or the windies. So we mun be ready for that. He took off a fatigue party, the Princess, Sir Archie, and McGuffog, to help in moving furniture to the several doors. Syme and Carfrey attended to the kitchen entrance, while he himself made a tour of the ground-floor windows. For half an hour the empty house was loud with strange sounds. McGuffog, who was a giant in strength, filled the passage of the veranda end with an assortment of furniture ranging from a grand piano to a vast mahogany sofa, while Saskia and Sir Archie pillaged the bedrooms and packed up the interstices with mattresses in lieu of sandbags. Dougal, on his return, saw fit to approve their work. "'That'll fickle the black kids. Down at the kitchen door we've got a mangle, five wash-tubs, and the best part of a ton of coal. It's the windies I'm anxious about, for they're all big to fill up. But I've gotten tubs of water below them, and a lot of war netting I found in the cellar.' Sir Archie morosely wiped his brow. "'I can't say I ever hated a job more,' he told Saskia. "'Seems pretty cool to march into somebody else's house and make free with his furniture.' I hope to goodness our friends from the sea do turn up, or we'll look pretty foolish. Lydon will have a score against me. He won't forget. "'You're not weakening?' asked Dougal fiercely. Oh, "'Not a bit. Only hoping somebody hasn't made a mighty big mistake.' "'You needn't be feared for that. Now you listen to your instructions. We're terrible few for such a big place, but we more make up for shortness of numbers by extra mobility. The gamekeeper will keep the windy that looks on the verandy, and fell any man that gets through.' You'll hold the veranda door, and the other lame man, Mr. Carfrey, you call him, will keep the back door. I've told the one-armed man, who has some kind of a head on him, that he won't keep on the move, watching to see if they try the front door or any of the other windies. If they do, he takes his station there. Do you follow? Sir Archie nodded gloomily. What is my post? Saskia asked. I've appointed ye my chief of staff, was the answer. You see, we've no reserves. If this door's the dangerous bit, it won't be reinforced from elsewhere, and that'll want savage thinking. You have to be a on the move, men, and keep me informed. If they break in at two bits, we're beat, and there'll be nothing for it but to retire to our last position. Ye can the room anoint the hall where they keep the coats. That's our last trench, and at the worst we fall back there and stick it out. It has a strong door and a wee windy, so they'll no be able to get in on our rear. We should be able to put up a good defence there, unless they fire the place over our heads. Now we'd better give out the guns. "'We don't want any shooting if we can avoid it,' said Sir Archie, who found his distaste for Dougal growing, though he was under the spell of the one being there who knew precisely his own mind. "'Just what I was going to say. My instructions is, reserve your fire, and don't loose off till you have a man up against the end of your barrel.' "'Good Lord! We'll get into a horrible row.' The whole thing may be a mistake, and we'll all be had up for wholesale homicide. No man shall fire unless I give the word. The commander-in-chief looked at him darkly. Some bitter retort was on his tongue, but he restrained himself. It appears, he said, that ye think I'm doing all this for fun. I'll no argue with ye. 
there can be just the one general in our battle, but I'll give you permission to say the word went afar. McGregor, he muttered, a strange expedient for any use in moments of deep emotion. I wager you'll be saying the word afore I say it myself. He turned to the princess. I hand over you to you till I am back, for I'm only off and see to the diehards. I wish I could bring them in here, but I daren't lose my communications. I likely get in by the boiler house skylight when I come back, but it might be as well to keep a road open here unless you're actually attacked. Dougal clambered over the mattresses and the grand piano. A flicker of waning daylight appeared for a second as he squeezed through the door, and Sir Archie was left staring at the wrathful countenance of McGuffin. He laughed ruefully. "'I've been in about forty battles, and here's that little devil rather worried about my pluck and talking to me like a corps commander to a newly joined second lieutenant. All the same, he's a remarkable child, and we'd better behave as if we were in for a real shindy. What do you think, Princess?' I think we are in for what you call a shindy. I am in command, remember. I order you to serve out the guns. This was done, a shotgun and a hundred cartridges to each, while McGuffog, who was a marksman, was also given a sporting manlicker, and two other rifles, a .303 and a small-bore Holland, were kept in reserve in the hall. Sir Archie, free from Dougal's compelling presence, gave the gamekeeper peremptory orders not to shoot till he was bidden and Carfrey at the kitchen door was warned to the same effect. The shuttered house, where the only light apart from the garden-room was the feeble spark of the electric torches, had the most disastrous effect upon his spirits. The gale which roared in the chimney and eddied among the rafters of the hall seemed an infernal commotion in a tomb. "'Let's go upstairs,' he told Saskia. "'There must be a view from the upper windows.' "'You can see the top of the old tower and part of the sea,' she said. I know it well, for it was my only amusement to look at it. On clear days, too, one could see high mountains far in the west. His depression seemed to have affected her, for she spoke listlessly, unlike the vivid creature which had led the way in. In a gaunt, west-looking bedroom, the one in which Heritage and Dixon had camped the night before, they opened a fold of the shutters and looked out into a world of grey rack and driving rain. The tar roof showed mistily beyond the ridge of down but its environs were not in their prospect. The lower regions of the house had been gloomy enough, but this bleak place with its drab outlook struck a chill to Sir Archie's soul. He dolefully lit a cigarette. "'This is a pretty rotten show for you,' he told her. "'It strikes me as a rather unpleasant brand of nightmare.' "'I've been living with nightmares for three years,' she said wearily. He cast his eyes round the room. "'I think the Kennedys were mad to build this confounded barrack.' I've always disliked it, and old Quentin hadn't any use for it either. Cold, cheerless, raw monstrosity. Hasn't been a very goody place for you, Princess. It has been my prison when I hoped it would be a sanctuary. But it may yet be my salvation. I'm sure I hope so. I say, you must be jolly hungry. I don't suppose there's any chance of tea for you. She shook her head. She was looking fixedly at the tower, as if she expected something to appear there, and he followed her eyes. Rum old shell, that. Quentin used to keep all kinds of livestock there, and when we were boys it was our castle where we played at being robber chiefs. It'd be dashed queer if the real thing should turn up this time. I suppose McCunn's poet is roosting there all by his loan. Can't say I envy him his job. Suddenly she caught his arm. I see a man, she whispered. There, 
He's behind those far bushes. There is his head again. It was clearly a man, but he presently disappeared, for he had come round by the south end of the house, past the stables, and had now gone over the ridge. The cut of his jib is uncommonly like Loudon, the factor. I thought McCunn had stretched him on a bed of pain. Lord, if this thing should turn out a farce, I simply can't face Loudon. I say, Princess, you don't suppose by any chance that McCunn's a little bit wrong in the head? She turned her candid eyes on him. You are in a very doubting mood. My feet are cold, and I don't mind admitting it. Hanged if I know what it is, but I don't feel this show a bit real. If it isn't, we're in a fair way to making howling idiots of ourselves, and get pretty well embroiled with the law. It's all right for the red-haired boy, for he can take everything seriously, even play. I could do the same thing myself when I was a kid. I don't mind running some kinds of risk. I've had a few in my time. But this is so infernally outlandish, and I, I don't quite believe in it. That is to say, I believe in it right enough when I look at you or listen to McCunn. But as soon as my eyes are off you, I begin to doubt again. I'm getting old, and I've a stake in the country, and I dare say I'm getting a bit of a prig. Anyway, I don't want to make a jackass of myself. Besides, there's this foul weather and this beastly house to ice my feet. He broke off with an exclamation, for on the grey, cloud-bounded stage in which the roof of the tower was the central feature, actors had appeared. Dim, hurrying shapes showed through the mist, dipping over the ridge as if coming from the garpal foot. She seized his arm, and he saw that her listlessness was gone. Her eyes were shining. "'It is they!' she cried. "'The nightmare is real at last. Do you doubt now?' He could only stare, for these shapes arriving and vanishing like wisps of fog still seemed to him phantasmal. The girl held his arm tightly clutched and craned towards the window-space. He tried to open the frame, and succeeded in smashing the glass. A swirl of wind drove inwards, and blew a loose lock of Saskia's hair across his brow. "'I wish Dougal were back,' he muttered, and then came the crack of a shot. The pressure on his arm slackened, and a pale face was turned to him. "'He is alone. Mr. Heritage, he has no chance. They will kill him like a dog.' "'Oh, they'll never get in,' he assured her. "'Dougal said the place could hold out for hours.' Another shot followed, and presently a third. She twined her hands, and her eyes were wild. "'We can't leave him to be killed,' she gasped. "'It's the only game. We're playing for time, remember. Besides, he won't be killed. Great Scott!' As he spoke, a sudden explosion cleft the drone of the wind, and a patch of gloom flashed into yellow light. "'Bomb!' he cried. "'Lord, I might have thought of that!' The girl had sprung back from the window. "'I cannot bear it. I will not see him murdered in sight of his friends.' I'm going to show myself, and when they see me they will leave him. No, you must stay here. Presently they will be around this house. Don't be afraid for me. I'm very quick afoot. For God's sake, don't! Here, Princess, stop! And he clutched at her skirt. Look here, I'll go. You can't. You've been wounded. I'm in command, you know. Keep the door open till I come back. He hobbled after her, but she easily eluded him. She was smiling now, and blew a kiss to him. "'La, la, la!' she trilled as she ran down the stairs. He heard her voice below admonishing McGuffog. Then he pulled himself together and went back to the window. He had brought the little Holland with him, and he poked its barrel through the hole in the glass. "'Curse my game leg!' he said, almost cheerfully, for the situation was now becoming one with which he could cope. "'I ought to be able to hold up the pursuit a bit. My heart, what a girl!' With a rifle cuddled to his shoulder, 
he watched a slim figure come into sight on the lawn, running towards the ridge. He reflected that she must have dropped from the high veranda wall. That reminded him that something must be done to make the wall climbable for her return, so he went down to McGuffog, and the two squeezed through the barricaded door to the veranda. The boiler-house ladder was still in position, but it did not reach half the height, so McGuffog was adjured to stand by it to help, and in the meantime to wait on duty by the wall. Then he hurried upstairs to his watch-tower. The girl was in sight, almost on the crest of the high ground. There she stood for a moment, one hand clutching at her errant hair, the other shielding her eyes from the sting of the rain. He heard her cry, as Heritage had heard her, but since the wind was blowing towards him, the sound came louder and fuller. Again she cried, and then stood motionless with her hands above her head. It was only for an instant, for the next he saw she had turned and was racing down the slope, jumping the little scrogs of hazel like a deer. On the ridge appeared faces, and then over it swept a mob of men. She had a start of some fifty yards, and laboured to increase it, having doubtless the veranda wall in mind. Sir Archie, sick with anxiety, nevertheless spared time to admire her prowess. "'Gad, she's a miler!' he ejaculated. "'She'll do it. I'm hanged if she don't do it!' Against men in seamen's boots and heavy clothing she had a clear advantage. But two shook themselves loose from the pack and began to gain on her. At the main shrubbery they were not thirty yards behind, and in her passage through it her skirts must have delayed her, for when she emerged the pursuit had halved the distance. He got the sights of the rifle on the first man, but the lawn sloped up towards the house, and to his consternation he found that the girl was in the line of fire. Madly he ran to the other window of the room, tore back the shutters, shivered the glass, and flung his rifle to his shoulder. The fellow was within three yards of her, but thank God he had now a clear field. He fired low and just ahead of him, and had the satisfaction to see him drop like a rabbit, shot in the leg. His companion stumbled over him, and for a moment the girl was safe. But her speed was failing. She passed out of sight on the veranda side of the house, and the rest of the pack had gained ominously over the easier ground of the lawn. He thought for a moment of trying to stop them by his fire, but realised that if every shot told, there would still be enough of them left to make sure of her capture. The only chance was at the veranda and he went downstairs at a pace undreamed of since the days when he had two whole legs. McGuffog, manlicker in hand, was poking his neck over the wall. The pursuit had turned to the corner and were about twenty yards off. The girl was at the foot of the ladder, breathless, drooping with fatigue. She tried to climb limply and feebly and very slowly, as if she were too giddy to see clear. Above were two cripples, and at her back the van of the now triumphant pack. Sir Archie, game-leg or no, was on the parapet preparing to drop down and hold off the pursuit were it only for seconds. But at that moment he was aware that the situation had changed. At the foot of the ladder a tall man seemed to have sprung out of the ground. He caught the girl in his arms, climbed the ladder, and McGuffock's great hands reached down and seized her and swung her into safety. Up the wall, by means of cracks and tufts, was shinning a small boy. The stranger coolly faced the pursuers, and at the sight of him, they checked, those behind stumbling against those in front. He was speaking to them in a foreign tongue, and to Sir Archie's ear the words were like the crack of a lash. The hesitation was only for a moment, for a voice among them cried out, and the whole pack gave tongue shrilly and surged on again. But that instant of check had given the stranger his chance. He was up the ladder, and gripping the parapet, found rest for his feet in a fissure. Then he bent down, drew up the ladder, handed it to McGuffog, and with a mighty heave pulled himself over the top. 
He seemed to hope to defend the veranda, but the door at the west end was being assailed by a contingent of the enemy, and he saw that its thin woodwork was yielding. "'Into the house!' he cried, as he picked up the ladder and tossed it over the wall on the pack surging below. He was only just in time, for the west door yielded. In two steps he had followed McGuffock through the chink into the passage, and the concussion of the grand piano pushed hard against the veranda door from within coincided with the first battering on the said door from without. In the garden-room the feeble lamp showed a strange grouping. Saskia had sunk into a chair to get her breath, and seemed too dazed to be aware of her surroundings. Dougal was manfully striving to appear at his ease, but his lip was quivering. "'A near thing that time,' he observed. "'It was the blame of that man's old motorcycle.' The stranger cast sharp eyes around the place and company. "'An awkward corner, gentlemen,' he said. "'How many are there of you? Four men and a boy? And you've placed guards at all the entrances?' "'They have bombs,' Sir Archie reminded him. "'No doubt, but I do not think they will use them here, or their guns, unless there is no other way. Their purpose is kidnapping, and they hoped to do it secretly and slip off without leaving a trace. If they slaughter us, as they easily can, the cry will be out against them, and their vessel will be unpleasantly hunted.' Half their purpose is already spoiled, for it is no longer secret. They may break us by sheer weight, and I fancy the first shooting will be done by us. It's the windows I'm afraid of. Some tone in his quiet voice reached the girl in the wicker chair. She looked up wildly, saw him, and with a cry of Alatia ran to his arms. There she hung while his hand fondled her hair like a mother with a scared child. Sir Archie, watching the whole thing in some stupefaction, thought he had never in his days seen more nobly matched human creatures. "'It is my friend!' she cried triumphantly. "'The friend whom I appointed to meet me here. Oh, I did well to trust him. Now we need not fear anything.' As if in ironical answer came a great crashing at the veranda door, and the twanging of chords cruelly mishandled. The grand piano was suffering internally from the assaults of the boiler-house ladder. "'Will I give him a shot?' was McGuffog's hoarse inquiry. "'Action stations,' Alexis ordered, for the command seemed to have shifted to him from Dougal. "'The windows are the danger. The boy will patrol the ground floor and give us warning, and I and this man,' pointing to sign, "'will be ready at the threatened point. And for God's sake no shooting unless I give the word. If we take them on at that game we haven't a chance.' He said something to Saskia in Russian, and she smiled assent and went to Sir Archie's side. "'You and I must keep this door,' she said. Sir Archie was never very clear afterwards about the events of the next hour. The princess was in the maddest spirits, as if the burden of three years had slipped from her, and she was back in her first girlhood. She sang as she carried more lumber to the pile, perhaps the song which had once entranced heritage but Sir Archie had no ear for music. She mocked at the furious blows which rained at the other end, for the door had gone now, and in the windy gap could be seen a blur of dark faces. Oddly enough, he found his own spirits mounting to meet hers. It was real business at last, the qualms of the civilian had been forgotten, and there was rising in him that joy in a scrap which had once made him one of the most daring airmen on the Western Front. The only thing that worried him now was the coyness about shooting. What on earth were his rifles and shotguns for, unless to be used? He had seen the enemy from the veranda wall, and a more ruffianly crew he had never dreamed of. They meant the uttermost business, 
and against such it was surely the duty of good citizens to wage whole-hearted war. The princess was humming to herself a nursery rhyme. The king of Spain's daughter, she crooned, came to visit me, and all for the sake— Oh, that poor piano! In her clear voice she cried something in Russian, and the wind carried a laugh from the veranda. At the sound of it she stopped. I had forgotten, she said. Paul is there. I had forgotten. After that she was very quiet, but she redoubled her labours at the barricade. To the man it seemed that the pressure from without was slackening. He called to McGuffog to ask about the garden-room window, and the reply was reassuring. The gamekeeper was gloomily contemplating Dougal's tubs of water and wire netting, as he might have contemplated a vermin-trap. Sir Archie was growing acutely anxious, the anxiety of the defender of a straggling fortress which is vulnerable at a dozen points. It seemed to him that strange noises were coming from the rooms beyond the hall. Did the back door lie that way? And was there not a smell of smoke in the air? If they tried fire in such a gale, the place would burn like matchwood. He left his post, and in the hall found Dougal. "'All quiet,' the chieftain reported. "'Far of quiet. I don't like it. The enemy's not putting out his strength yet. The Russian says all the west wind is a terrible dangerous. Him and the chauffeur's doing their best, but we can't block the muckle glass panes.' He returned to the princess, and found that the attack had indeed languished on that particular barricade. The withers of the grand piano were left unrung, and only a faint scuffling informed him that the veranda was not empty. "'They're gathering for an attack elsewhere,' he told himself. But what if that attack were a feint? He and McGuffog must stick to their post, for in his belief the veranda door and the garden-room window were the easiest places where an entry in mass could be forced. Suddenly Dougal's whistle blew, and with it came a most almighty crash, somewhere towards the west side. With a shout of, "'Hold tight, McGuffog!' Sir Archie bolted into the hall, and, led by the sound, reached what had once been the ladies' bedroom. A strange sight met his eyes, for the whole framework of one window seemed to have been thrust inward, and in the gap Alexis was swinging a fender. Three of the enemy were in the room, one senseless on the floor, one in the grip of Syme, whose single hand was tightly clenched on his throat, and one engaged with Dougal in a corner. The die-hard leader was sore-pressed, and to his help Sir Archie went. The fresh assault made the seaman duck his head, and Dougal seized the occasion to smite him hard with something which caused him to roll over. It was Spidel's life-preserver which he had annexed that afternoon. Alexis, at the window, seemed to have for a moment daunted the attack. "'Bring that table!' he cried, and the thing was jammed into the gap. "'Now you,' this to Syme, "'get the man from the back door to hold this place with his gun. There's no attack there. It's about time for shooting now, or we'll have them in our rear. What in heaven is that?' It was McGuffog, whose great bellow resounded down the corridor. Sir Archie turned and shuffled back to be met by a distressing spectacle. The lamp, burning as peacefully as it might have burned on an old lady's tea-table, revealed the window of the garden-room, driven bodily inward, shutters and all, and now forming an inclined bridge over Dougal's ineffectual tubs. In front of it stood McGuffog, swinging his gun by the barrel and yelling curses, which, being mainly couched in the vernacular, were happily meaningless to Saskia. She herself stood at the hall-door, plucking at something hidden in her breast. He saw that it was a little ivory-handled pistol. The enemy's feint had succeeded, for even as Sir Archie looked, three men leapt into the room. On the neck of one the butt of McGuffog's gun crashed, but two scrambled to their feet and made for the girl. Sir Archie met the first with his fist, a clean drive on the jaw, 
followed by a damaging hook with his left that put him out of action. The other hesitated for an instant and was lost, for McGuffer caught him by the waist from behind and sent him through the broken frame to join his comrades without. "'Up the stairs!' Dougal was shouting, for the little room beyond the hall was clearly impossible. "'Our flanks turned, they're pouring through the other windy!' Out of a corner of his eye Sir Archie caught sight of Alexis, with Siam and Carfrae in support, being slowly forced towards them along the corridor. "'Upstairs!' he shouted. "'Come on, McGuffer! Lead on, Princess!' He dashed out the lamp, and the place was in darkness. With this retreat from the forward trench-line ended the opening phase of the battle. It was achieved in good order, and position was taken up on the first-floor landing, dominating the main staircase and the passage that led to the back stairs. At their back was a short corridor ending in a window which gave on the north side of the house above the veranda, and from which an active man might descend to the veranda roof. It had been carefully reconnoitred beforehand by Dougal, and his were the dispositions. The odd thing was that the retreating force were in good heart. The three men from the mains were warming to their work, and Murkoffog wore an air of genial ferocity. "'Dash fine position I call this,' said Sir Archie. Only Alexis was silent and preoccupied. "'We are still at their mercy,' he said. "'Pray God your peace come soon.' He forbade shooting yet a while. "'The ladies are strong card,' he said. "'They won't use their guns while she is with us, but if it ever comes to shooting they can wipe us out in a couple of minutes. One of you watch that window, for Paula Breskov is no fool.' Their exhilaration was short-lived. Below, in the hall, it was black darkness, save for a greyness at the entrance of the veranda passage, but the defence was soon aware that the place was thick with men. Presently there came a scuffling from Carfrae's post towards the back stairs, and a cry as of someone choking. At the same moment a flare was lit below which brought the whole hall from floor to rafters into blinding light. It revealed a crowd of figures, some still in the hall and some halfway up the stairs, and it revealed two more figures at the end of the upper landing where Carfrae had been stationed. The shapes were motionless like mannequins in a shop window. "'They've got a street, all right,' Sir Archie groaned. "'What the devil are they waiting for?' "'They wait for their leader,' said Alexis. No one of the party will ever forget the ensuing minutes. After the hubbub of the barricades, the ominous silence was like icy water, chilling and petrifying with an indefinable fear. There was no sound but the wind, but presently mingled with it came odd, wild voices. "'Here to the waps,' McGuffer whispered. Sir Archie, who found the tension unbearable, sought relief in contradiction. "'You're an unscientific brute, McGuffog,' he told his henchman. "'It's a disgrace that a gamekeeper should be such a rotten naturalist. What would Woyops be doing here at this time of year?' "'All the same, I could swear it was Woyops, Sir Archibald.' Then Dougal broke in, and his voice was excited. "'It's no Woyops. That's our patrol single. Man, there's hope for us yet. I believe it's the police.' His words were unheeded, for the figures below drew apart, and a young man came through them. His beautifully shaped dark head was bare, and as he moved he unbuttoned his oilskins and showed the trim dark blue garb of the yachtsman. He walked confidently up the stairs, an odd, elegant figure among his heavy companions. "'Good afternoon, Alexis,' he said in English. "'I think we may now regard this interesting episode as closed. I take it that you surrender?' "'Saskia, dear, you are coming with me on a little journey. "'Will you tell my men where to find your baggage?' "'The reply was in Russian, 
Alexis's voice was as cool as the others, and it seemed to wake him to anger. He replied in a rapid torrent of words, and appealed to the men below, who shouted back. The flare was dying down, and shadows again hid most of the hall. Dougal crept up behind Sir Archie. "'Here, I think it's the police. They're whistling out by, and I hear folk crying to each other, nor the foreigners.' Again Alexis spoke, and then Saskia joined in. What she said rang sharp with contempt, and her fingers played with her little pistol. Suddenly, before the young man could answer, Dobson bustled towards him. The innkeeper was labouring under some strong emotion, for he seemed to be pleading and pointing urgently towards the door. "'I tell ye, it's the police,' whispered Dougal. "'They're nicket!' There was a swaying in the crowd, and anxious faces. Men surged in, whispered, and went out, and a clamour arose which the leader stilled with a fierce gesture. "'You there!' he cried, looking up. "'You English!' We mean you no ill, but I require you to hand over to me the lady and the Russian who is with her. I give you a minute by my watch to decide. If you refuse, my men are behind you and around you, and you go with me to be punished at my leisure. I warn you, cried Sir Archie, we are armed and will shoot down anyone who dares to lay a hand on us. You fool, came the answer. I can send you all to eternity before you touch a trigger. Leon was by his side now, Leon and Spidal imploring him to do something which he angrily refused. Outside there was a new clamour, faces showing at the door and then vanishing, and an anxious hum filled the hall. Dobson appeared again, and this time he was a figure of fury. "'Ah, ye daft man!' he cried. "'I tell ye, the police are closing round us, and there's no moment to lose if we would get back to the boats. If you're no think of your own neck, I'm thinking of mine.' The whole thing's a bloody misfire. Come on, lads, if you're not besotted on destruction. Leon laid a hand on the leader's arm and was roughly shaken off. Spidal fared no better, and the little group on the upper landing saw the two shrug their shoulders and make for the door. The hall was emptying fast, and the watchers had gone from the back stairs. The young man's voice rose to a scream. He commanded, threatened, cursed. But panic was in the air, and he had lost his mastery. Quick! croaked Dougal. Now's the time for the counter-attack. But the figure on the stairs held them motionless. They could not see his face, but by instinct they knew that it was distraught with fury and defeat. The flare blazed up again as the flame caught a knot of fresh powder, and once more the place was bright with the uncanny light. The hall was empty, save for the pale man who was in the act of turning. He looked back. If I go now, I will return. The world is not wide enough to hide you from me, Saskia. You will never get her, said Alexis. A sudden devil flamed into his eyes, the devil of some ancestral savagery which would destroy what is desired but unattainable. He swung round, his hand went to his pocket, something clicked, and his arm shot out like a baseball pitcher's. So intent was the gaze of the others on him that they did not see a second figure ascending the stairs. Just as Alexis flung himself before the princess, the newcomer caught the young man's outstretched arm and wrenched something from his hand. The next second he had hurled it into a far corner where stood the great fireplace. There was a blinding sheet of flame, a dull roar, and then billow upon billow of acrid smoke. As it cleared they saw that the fine Italian chimney-piece, the pride of the builder of the house, was a mass of splinters, and that a great hole had been blown through the wall into what had been the dining-room. A figure 
was sitting on the bottom step feeling its bruises. The last enemy had gone. When Mr. John Heritage raised his eyes, he saw the princess with a very pale face in the arms of a tall man whom he had never seen before. If he was surprised at the sight, he did not show it. Not a little bomb, that. Time fuse. I remember we struck the brand first in July 18. Are they rounded up? Sir Archie asked. They've bolted. Whether they'll get away is another matter. I left half the mounted police a minute ago at the top of the West Lodge Avenue. The other lot went to the Garble Foot to cup off the boats. Good Lord, man, Sir Archie cried. The police have been here for the last ten minutes. You're wrong. They came with me. Then what on earth? began the astonished baronet. He stopped short, for he suddenly got his answer. Into the hall from the veranda limped a boy. Never was there seen so ruinous a child. He was dripping wet, his shirt was all but torn off his back, his bleeding nose was poorly staunched by a wisp of handkerchief, his breeches were in ribbons, and his poor bare legs looked as if they had been comprehensively kicked and scratched. Limpingly he entered, yet with a kind of pride like some small cock-sparrow who had lost most of his plumage, but has vanquished his adversary. With a yell Dougal went down the stairs. The boy saluted him, and they gravely shook hands. It was the meeting of Wellington and Blucher. The chieftain's voice shrilled in triumph, but there was a break in it. The glory was almost too great to be borne. "'I kenned it!' he cried. "'It was the Gorbals diehards. There stands the man that done it. You're no fickle Thomas Yowney!' End of chapter 14